0: To iMove Season Two, I am really pumped to have you join me again today. This is George Kros. Uh On the first episode of this season, we are really glad to have AJ Giuliani and John Spencer. We were talking about their book launch as well as diving into the book "The Innovator's Mindset." I hope you enjoy the episode. There's some really great conversations here. I look forward to connecting. Hey everyone, this is George Kuros. We're actually in season two. It's like a TV series of iMOOC, the Innovators Mindset MOOC. Um, We got people jumping on right now. I am uh, really glad to uh, see all the people that have uh, joined uh, this time around. Uh, We're going to be delving into the book, um, sharing some different ideas um, around that, but we got some really awesome guests. And uh, we have some of your Twitter questions tonight, too. So we're, we're planning to have this more of a conversation this time, uh, getting people to kind of discuss some of the things that they're doing. But I'm actually going to turn it over to uh, Katie Martin, who has been so gracious to co-host this with me uh, this season and the last one. And so I'm going to turn it over to her and we're going to get in some conversation. So Katie, please introduce yourself and, uh, and, and uh, intro our, our awesome guest today.
1: Great, welcome everyone. We're happy to be here again, looking forward to the conversations. We are excited to have AJ Giuliani and John Spencer with us tonight. So guys, will you take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourselves and some of your work? I think that's you, John.
2: All right, (laughs) Um, I'm John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher and a current college professor and um, I've been using design thinking for about a decade in different variations.
3: Hey, uh, I'm AJ Giuliani. What's up, everybody out there? George, we getting viewers? Is it? It's yeah, we got
0: about 150 already.
3: All right, let's go. Uh, so, I am currently a director of technology and innovation for a school district in outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Former middle school teacher, English teacher, high school English teacher um a co-author of a pretty cool book with this guy over there john uh called launch and uh just again excited to be here thanks for having us on uh george and katie excited to get going
0: yeah and and, and uh I, I know actually all three of these people uh very well and and to be honest with you they're all people that i really inspire me and do some really amazing things and so i am really pumped to um have you have you on and um, I, I actually really want to uh, suggest that if you are reading The Innovator's Mindset and uh, you, you like the stuff that you're reading in there, that I would actually say Launch is a beautiful companion book to that, and, and it really dives deeper uh, into some elements. So uh, can you guys kind of talk about um, why you wrote the book in the first place and, and some of the stuff that you're seeing since the book has come out?
3: Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of jump in real quick, and I think – we all want to be creative teachers, right? There, there's every teacher that I've met wants our students to do creative work. The teachers want to be creative. Um, but the kind of current educational climate in a lot of places prohibits, it, it makes it really hard to be creative. And Launch came out of a lot of conversations between John and I. We're good friends. And we talked about how we both use design thinking in, in very different contexts, right? Different uh, courses and classes um, to have a creative process because I think a lot of people get stuck uh, with creativity because they're afraid but oftentimes because they don't know like how to navigate through the mess and so um, launch is that kind of design thinking process that is is really a, a way to navigate creativity in the classroom. Good job. Yeah, and I think to
2: that, that, uh, piggyback on that a little bit I think we, we, we kept hearing people say, like, oh, it's great that you want to do creative th- things or, oh, it's great that you want kids to be innovators, but, um, but how do you actually make it happen? Um, and then we would often hear the same things from people. I don't have enough time. What about the standards? I don't have the, the best materials. I teach in a regular public school. And we were like... Yep, that was us. That's our
3: entire career. We
2: We didn't have the materials. We had the same limitations of time. And we really believe that um, constraint can lead to even better creative breakthroughs, and that those limitations are the design features that happen in your lesson. And so um, we both, uh, I feel like we wrote the kind of book that we wish we had had ahead of time at the beginning of our journey because i feel like as we started talking about our process we had such a similar journey and we just like mistaked our way forward like we just kept making mistakes along the way and we thought what were the big things that we learned along the way um, as we as we watched our own design thinking framework evolve and and there were a couple things that we modified from existing design thinking frameworks, um, the launch being one of the biggest ones, but also adding a, a whole research piece to it. And so, you know, really, I, I feel like the, the book was, came out of a desire to write the kind of book that we wish we had had when we started our, our
0: own journey so but when you guys write this because i actually got this question from uh somebody today uh and they were talking a lot about you know student choice and they're like so does this like are you talking only high school students right like do the ideas that you're talking about pertain k to 12 like is it only for certain age groups like what are you seeing there for for who you're connecting with i mean it's
3: it's definitely k through 12. uh so both john and i taught 6 through 12. i've i've been in k through 12 past five years And and quite honestly, it works wonderful with younger students, just as you would kind of teach them the uh, scientific method, teaching them design thinking is a mental model for success, not just in school, but in creative work beyond life. And, uh, you know, last year we had the Global Day of Design, 40,000 students, 450 schools, many of them elementary students, younger students. And what's really cool about um, a lot of the younger students is they don't have maybe the same fear of failure that some of the middle school and high school students have. And so they just take massive risks um, creating different types of things. And so I know that uh, sometimes backgrounds can kind of people can say, oh, that's like, you know, kind of more of a high school, middle school thing. But we've seen a lot of younger students, uh, teachers in my own school district using this in my previous school district. And uh they have awesome success. So I mean, you, you'll even see if you follow the hashtag #launchbook, tons of, of elementary teachers and middle school teachers uh, using this in their classrooms.
2: And I think, um, so the younger students tend to be far less risk averse, but they're also far more curious. Uh, there's something that you had said that, that always stuck with me, George, the, the piece about, um, you know, if you end school less curious than how you started, then, then we failed. And um, when it comes to design thinking, when I was a a tech coach for a year, um, first and second, first, second, third grade classes, um, the students were so curious about everything that um, that natural curiosity is kind of what fueled the design process. Um, And so I think the curiosity and the risk aversion are kind of related to
3: each other. You think people? Yeah, question for you. Like, do you think we're
0: all just staring at each other? Yeah, that was awkward. We're all yeah. frozen. we won't blame Katie for not taking that question?
1: <laughs> I was about to.
0: She, she's uh, Katie has the best wait time of anyone I've ever met. She's, <laughs> she's got a really solid wait time. Yeah, it's good <laughs> wait time. Are you gonna still wait us out, Katie, or?
1: I turn now? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nah, she's just showing her skills. That's all. That's all. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in. So that the, the, the thing is, okay. So you kind of started this off early, and I was, I was interested when you said this, because a lot of people will say things like, "Oh, no, 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 we can't do this because you know we're in a public school, we don't have funding, we don't have time, we don't have curric, blah 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 blah." Right? So how are you finding the ways to actually? Um, how, are, how are the time, like, how are you finding helping people to, like, embrace this within those constraints of, you know, no funding, no curriculum time? What's the, what's the shift there for people to make it happen?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I, I, I'm going to be blunt and just say you got to do it. Uh, part, part of it is um, if people are kind of complaining and have excuses, that's completely natural. It's not like these excuses um, aren't actually happening but that doesn't prohibit you from from influencing and controlling the things you can control in your classroom. And a lot of times what people think first when they hear design thinking, they think it's something that happens at the end of a unit, right? So George, like, we're going to learn traditional. We're going to like just go through the curriculum and at the end of the unit, we're going to do a project. And they'll say, I don't have time for that. I don't have resources or a 3D printer or anything like that. And what we're basically saying is no, 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 no. This is a learning process that goes on top of the curriculum. It is not something separate. It's not something you have to add in at the end. It's not an event. It's part of the learning process. And so when you we're kind of read the book, we give really specific examples of, of how to make that happen.
0: And, and I think that's actually a really important uh, connection because a lot of people, uh, when we talk about the notion of innovation in education, they'll, they'll ask me question like, what about the basics? I'm like, well, that's actually, it's how you teach the basics where the innovation comes out, right? It's not, well, we're going to do innovation time and then we're going to do basics time. It's actually like re-looking at the curriculum. And I actually, uh, I had a teacher challenge me on this. And their comment was along the lines of, you know, well, innovation is not in the curriculum. I'm like, neither are worksheets. So I don't understand why you're doing those. And and so like it, there, there is a certain artistry to how you bring this thing to life. And, and I think there's a lot of things where... Um... It, it really is
2: about the way you think of it. So, so for example, um, the, the time factor is the, the biggest complaint I hear. You know, I don't have time for it. And then that's followed up with, well, we have a really tight curriculum map. Well, maps should inspire possibilities. Um, it, there's a difference between a, a rigid route that tells you exactly where you have to go versus a map that tells you where you could go. And a curriculum map, tells you things you have to cover, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. And it doesn't tell you what you can't include. So if it's about standards, I have never seen a teacher get in trouble because they integrated additional standards into uh, a unit plan or a lesson plan. You're not gonna get in trouble for that. And so it's about the mindset that teachers have as they approach it. And it really is about reorganizing the way you do curriculum. So for example, we, we get into this in the book as well. Um, you know, design thinking might take a little bit longer in terms of you're, you're spending more time in specific phases, but what you're not doing is as much direct instruction, and you're not stopping to take a bunch of tests, and you're not doing worksheets, and you're not doing review. Um, and in the process, I would argue it's actually you learn it as a deeper level, but you still get the same breadth that you would get In a traditional way, you're not sacrificing anything.
3: Yeah, because the the, the heart of design thinking, I know we have a, a launch cycle and there's multiple steps, but really it's like kind of two things. You're doing and you're iterating. You're doing and you're iterating and you're learning from those feedback loops, whether it's feedback from an audience, a real audience that you create something, feedback from your peers, feedback from your teacher. Like that's how we learn. And so a test is a really bad way to get feedback because you take it, and you don't know immediately what you got on it. You got to wait for a teacher to give it back to you. After the teacher gives it back to you, a lot of times you're on to something completely different. This process provides that immediate feedback loops that you need to learn.
1: So what are some things that you guys have seen? What kind of products or projects are kids doing and teachers doing that are changing the way kids are learning in school?
3: Lots of good stuff. Um, I'll, I'll give one. Um, John, I'm sure you have you have a ton that you can. You can jump in with Um, specifically, uh, we were talking with uh, Bo Adams, awesome educator, um, and they do a lot of design thinking in his school. And he had a group of second graders that um, became aware of an issue that they had in the lunchroom, which was nobody was recycling. And by nobody, I mean, kids weren't recycling. Adults weren't recycling. uh, Nobody was recycling. Right. Everybody that was supposed to be wasn't. And so the kids became aware of this issue themselves. They brought it to the teacher, and then they created a project based on their awareness. Traditionally, that doesn't happen. Traditionally, a lot of times it's the teacher saying, here's a problem I want you to solve, and here's the steps I want you to solve it, and here's the rubric that I want you to kind of do. And and Chris Lehman says that's a recipe, right? You know, that's because you're gonna get the same thing back, but here the kids are aware, they bring a problem, now the class starts working on this. They develop uh, ideas, brainstorm things. Finally, you know, come up with an idea that they want to gamify this this process of recycling. So they create their own backboard on top of the recycling bin. That when you throw something in the recycling bin, cha-ching, you get a point. And then the gamification thing is now the second graders say, hey, if you get up to 100 points in, in a, you know, a lunchroom, you get this. You get 200 points, you get this. And this is all because second graders were aware of something and used the design thinking process and created that themselves. Like that's student voice, student choice, but also the agency that we always talk about we want to see in schools. But it happened because they were allowed to do that. They were supported in doing it. They made time to actually do that. And that's what they were kind of praised and assessed on, not kind of the traditional way. So that's just kind of one example of, a, of an elementary school kind of using the process.
1: And so teachers, I mean, they have to be problem finders, not just going through the recipe. But this is a hard thing for teachers to, to design when they haven't experienced that. So how how can we support teachers to really think about that process and think about how to create this in their classroom?
2: I would say this. Um... The first thing is if teachers can engage in design thinking on their own, do some kind of creative product that they launch to an authentic audience, that gives them the empathy that they need in terms of uh, dealing with students. Um, so that's one, one piece that I think uh, can help. A second one is, you know, <clears throat> if teachers have a chance to use it with students and have a, a very specific example. So um, I'll, I'll give a small example. Uh, on my blog, when you first check it out, there's a design thinking toolkit. And that design thinking toolkit includes a sample design thinking unit plan. And a lot of teachers, it's a, it's a really um, kind of content agnostic unit plan it's this whole thing where they create a sport there's a sketchy video to go with it and um, a, a lot of teachers used that in the first week of school as a team building thing with their students and that got their students experiencing design thinking playing around with design thinking checking it out and I think that you know finding little moments like that can be kind of like training wheels for figuring out how it works um, same thing was happened with um, the Mars challenge. You know, I, I had a lot of teachers who uh, emailed me and said, "Hey, the week before winter break, I used to just show you know Frosty the Snowman and stuff, and now I'm having my kids invent a school for Mars." Uh, and that was a design thinking challenge that was for free that they could access that they used. And so, you know, I, I would kind of compare it to, you know, if. If someone handed me just a rule book for how to play baseball, I would never have fallen in love with the game. But if I get to play the game and I get to see the game and I get to watch what it looks like, then eventually I'll learn the the infield fly rule and everything else. But if you just only have instructions on how to do it, that's never going to be enough.
1: Right. So...
0: Go ahead, Katie. Sorry.
1: I was just going to say, you know, one of the things as we're thinking about it, a lot of it's change. A lot of it's change in how teachers design experiences, change in what we expect for students. And George talks a lot about that in the book, that change is an opportunity to do something amazing. But still we have people that are reluctant. Um, so what are things that you've seen? Because you mentioned that, you know, teachers should engage in design thinking. Teachers should do this on their own. But if I really believe that if we want to create these learning environments across schools that leaders are responsible for creating the environment to help all teachers have these experiences and think differently. So what are some ways that um, we can help people in schools embrace this type of change and really start thinking about doing and and really creating better learning experiences for kids? I
3: think, I think a lot of teachers do this already. They just might not know it. Um, And so when you think about good teachers and we have so many good teachers out there, so much good happening in schools. I think the, uh, the narrative of um, schools are kind of boring places is overrated and not happening as much as we've seen anymore. And I'm kind of getting tired of, like, a, a lot of people saying, like, oh, we, schools are creative right now. They are. They're probably more creative than they ever have been. One of the things teachers do all the time with design thinking is that they create a lesson from scratch for their students, right? They look, listen, they're aware of the problem of how they can reach that specific group of students. Being a high school teacher, I'd have I teach the same lesson four times in a day. And that lesson would be different each time I taught it because I'd have to iterate based on the feedback I got from the first group. Then that summer or later that week or wherever, I'm revising and editing. I'm collaborating with my peers. And every single time I bring that lesson to a group of students, I'm launching it into authentic audience. Teachers have an authentic audience every single day. It is their students, it is their peers. The problem is students a lot of times don't have an authentic audience and they aren't given the same creation uh, time that a teacher has. That's not part of their job as a student. And so I think when when you see teachers designing a project or just a basic lesson that they want to convey something or get students excited or interested in what they're doing, they're already using design thinking. They're using that process. One of the things that we talk about in the book is how can we then kind of use that process then and and bring students into it, right? It shouldn't just be something that we're preparing kids to do when they leave school. As Georgia said before, why don't we give kids a chance to actually do something amazing while they're in school? And I think that's where the power of the framework comes in and the process. And, And it's almost we get tweets all the time from people that are like, Oh my gosh! It's so cool to to see that I've been using design thinking. I just didn't didn't really know it. I didn't put it together. And I think that's kind of one of those light bulb moments that a lot of teachers have uh, when they start engaging in the work.
0: I think um, I think what Aj talked about the notion of schools, you know, being boring and and all that. Um, I I don't know if I would disagree with you. I, I think that go back five years ago, I would actually see that now in the last year there has been an amazing shift in schools just in the last year i don't know if i would have argued if i would have argued with you maybe 5 years ago but the stuff that i'm seeing i think you're seeing it as well there has been a tremendous shift yeah. in education right now and it's just fascinating to watch and it's kind of like there's this there is a turning point and i actually i don't know if it's how big Twitter is, is that you have the exposure to like all these amazing ideas. Uh, You have authors writing books that have done some really amazing things that you have instant access to now that it's really powerful. Like, you know, having this conversation, it was really interesting. Um, I I can't see. I lost a tweet because there's a lot of people tweeting right now. It's awesome. But Sarah Thomas uh, is actually joining us uh, next week. And the reason, and the reason I bring her up is because she's quoted in your book and mm-hmm. i i i forgot about that connection between and like here's an educator who's doing amazing things leading the way sharing stuff that people have access to on these different mediums so i, I think it's really powerful to see the shift uh one of the things that kind of triggered me when you're when you're sharing um is i actually think though we're, we're kind of in the the point where there are still a lot of educators who um almost wait for an answer like they 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 ask me questions uh, with stuff they can figure out and I think Barry Schwartz talks about the notion of like um, the importance of wisdom the the idea of like you know there's things right in front of you and uh, you know like how are you figuring out these solutions do we always ask the principal or the superintendent for permission and and a lot of educators right now um, they they actually won't take risks because there's a perception of a policy but not an actual policy like they'll say oh I don't my principal never let me do this I'm like have you asked them? And, and often it's like, well, no, but I just know. And I'm like, well, ask them and see, see what's going on. And, and I kind of want to segue into um, your book and the connection between mine and um, similar, we're going to kind of go on to like four questions. Uh, the last time we did iMOOC, we just kind of had like some rapid fire, but I really want this to be much more conversational. And, and so the first question um, in, in the introduction of the book uh, I talk about, you know, the notion of Blockbuster, Netflix and, and the disconnect there and how Blockbuster actually had Netflix approach them. And uh, Blockbuster said, we're good, right? Like they didn't want to actually take them on. Um, and so, like, we're talking about innovation right now in education, but two articles uh, rolled across the Twitter sphere um, from my tweets uh, the last week. And one of them I found was really fascinating. I think it was from the New York Post. And it talked about schools reintroducing cursive, not, not placing more of an like actually bringing it back. And the second one uh, was a, an article from the Toronto District School Board, or sorry, not maybe not Toronto District School Board, but um, in the Toronto area, uh, talking about banning cell phones. So you have one hand, we're talking about innovation in education, and then you have banning cell phones and cursive handwriting being introduced. How do you guys see, and, and this is open to obviously Katie as well too, um, uh, hopefully you can get some conversation. How do you see kind of, is there a disconnect here or, or like what's happening that we're talking about innovation, people see it's crucial, but there's some, you know, maybe older mentalities to some of the stuff that we're doing. Well, I just want to jump
2: in and here's, I'm going to provide, a not provide, give a little push back to that and say, um, you know, I want to know what the why is what the rationale is for each of those things, because I am a huge fan of vintage innovation, that some of the newest, best ideas are actually old. So Socratic seminars, awesome. Sketchnoting, awesome. Um, Building things with duct tape and cardboard, awesome. Those are all old school things with a new twist. Um, You know, I I think that a, a child can learn a ton about systems thinking by playing chess so it's not that i like i don't think that innovation is necessarily new it's just different and and there is some difference there like i think that this this um, obsession with novelty isn't valuable and and we saw it with the like oh we have a we have a interactive whiteboard hey smart boards we're awesome now and that went nowhere because it didn't change pedagogy. So I just want to say ahead of time like I don't think the new is better. I want to know I want to know the why. So if well, you can I, tell me I, I for example good. with with cursive if you can tell me that there's some piece that I'm missing on cursive it's really valuable and you can give me the research to back it up and then you can prove to me that there's not a more interesting way to do that
0: then I'd be open to it. Well and I think that like the the reading of both of these things I, I, like new, new is is good if it's better. New is not good if it's just new. And I think that's a really important distinction I make in the book: is that it has to be new and better. So there are, you know, some best practices that work for kids, and we need to adopt them. But there's no best practice in the world that works for all students. None, including to be honest, you design thinking. It's not going to work for every child. And I think that the the policies that they're talking about. Um, are well, a kid can't sign their name. That or the kids are distracted from my lectures. Like they're not, they're not talking about, you know, something deep. And I think that's a very good point that you make, John. Is that um, is the why holding on to a practice that maybe not conducive to students in our world today, or is it something that's you know really important to? where the world is, like, there's, there's a lot of people asking for creative kids coming out of school, there is not anybody, um, maybe other than if you're in calligraphy, asking for cursive experts.
1: (laughs) But I think, George, a lot of that comes from fear, you know, they're, they're afraid that if they don't do some things the way that they, how they went to school, or the way that they know it, they're afraid, or the cell phones in classrooms, a lot of it, people say to me, it's, they don't feel like they have control, what if kids are doing something they shouldn't be doing? But so often, how often are is every kid paying attention and so engaged in everything the teacher is saying? Kids have been writing notes. Kids have been passing notes and off task for years, and it's just a new form. So I feel like this is people being afraid and not thinking differently about how they can leverage those technologies or those resources, instead just saying, take it out of the classroom and I'm going to ban cell phones. Um, I was in a district where they were, Going one-to-one, literally buying laptops for every child in the classroom or the entire district, and they still ban cell phones and we're paying ten, charging kids $10 if they brought their cell phones. <laughs> the irony there is just saying that they need to be in control and you have to do what I tell you to do, but it's not that kind of environment, I think, is led by fear and not really truly understanding what's possible.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, number one, I agree, my handwriting sucks. Right, so I probably could use some. some I agree. Seen lessons, right? My handwriting
0: is, is thick and scratched. Oh, you, you, John, you didn't want to say your handwriting sucks. You want <laughs> no, I'm I saying that. John's
3: A- handwriting is fine. My handwriting.
0: Oh <laughs> well, yeah, his handwriting does suck.
3: I write in all caps. Like like every letter is in caps. It's all, people are like, uh, and, and number two, like kids are kids are gonna be off task if it's boring and and and. And that's okay, right? Like I was off task as a student all the time. I, I don't, I don't know what's what's necessarily wrong with that.
2: Um, I think there's but, a there's that whole thing that like with schleck levels of engagement, and there's that whole thing that I think classes way too often aim for, which yeah. is strategic compliance when, and it's not engagement,
3: right? There's a lot of kids. Oh yeah, it's just that. that. It's, I agree with you, John, it's that strategic. Ritual compliance. But I'm going to bring it back to the Blockbuster thing because I wanted to make a point here that I, I think these, the two questions that you asked are pretty pertinent right now. The cool thing about Blockbuster is they had it figured out. People want three things cheap entertainment, quick entertainment, fast entertainment, right? They, they want that. And cheap entertainment was three bucks a movie, fast was the store on the corner, and convenient and quick was popping in the VHS or the DVD. But the, the cool thing that happened with Netflix is they went with the same model. People want cheap entertainment. It's 8 bucks streaming, right? They want it to be convenient. It's now convenient to any device at any time. They want it to be fast. Now it's streaming. And so Met- Netflix kept the same model that Blockbuster had but made it work for 2014. What schools need to realize is that, like, learning has always been human-centered. It's always been social. It's always been meaning-based. It's always been language-based It just has to work for kids in 2017. Now, those best practices still work. They just need to fit into the reality of how students are communicating, how you make human and social connections, what meaning is today in 2017. Like, that is the question that we should be talking about, not cursive or, or any other type of thing. It's no, how does it make meaning? to kids and build relationships to kids today in 2017. If you can make a relationship with a kid and, 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 engage them more with cursive, go ahead. So be it. I just, I just don't really see it happening.
0: Well, you know, what? like um, one of the things that you, I, I can't remember if it was John or AJ that said it. Um, I think it was AJ talking about, you know, if kids are bored, of course you're on their phones. Let's not kid ourselves. Adults are worse. And yeah. we'll go into these spaces too. And one of the things, and this might not be a popular thing I'm about to say, Um, but I'm actually about to write about this. Uh, It was actually inspired. um, I read a post by Jennifer Casataw just, uh, I think today. And she talked about um, some of this stuff with uh, phones. And I, I always say this, that sometimes a kid totally needs a cat video right now, that even if you're totally enthralled and just into something, that sometimes you just need to learn to take a mental break and you just need to do this. And, I always talk to, I know it's a weird thing to say, but just let go with me here. So I actually, uh, I talked about uh, to a group of, you know, staff and I asked them how many of you check on Facebook during the school day. And it, it, like reluctantly people put up their hands, but it was like 90%, right? They'll check their Facebook, you know, personal stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, how many of you check your email at night? And it's like a hundred percent. And they had no problem admitting that. So the disconnect here is that we feel horrible if our personal goes into our work, but we're totally fine with our work going into our personal. And I think that people, part of the skills that we need to actually teach kids is to understand themselves and what works for them. And it's not about controlling a kid's every single move. It's about getting the best quality of work Or learning out of that child. It's a different mindset, whereas we just wanted to control necessarily everything at one point. Like, you know, you got to be doing this at this time, or if you're not, you know, like some, some kids, some adults work better at night by themselves. And I think that do we, do we actually focus on this or we just focus on you do what I tell you at the point I tell you and don't stay off task? Or do we allow kids to kind of maybe just wander off? And I, I can't remember the article, but it was talking about like how we sometimes stop kids literally from daydreaming. Like they're in thoughts and they're imagining things. And we're like, hey, pay attention. And we like totally cut off their creative uh, notion at that point.
1: So that's a great point, George. And I wanted like this next point um, and the next question basically builds on that. Um, In the book you talk about, and I think AJ brought it up earlier, if students leave school less curious than when they started, we failed them. So that's a bold statement, and it's something that, you know, I think a lot of people resonate with. But what are the ways that we can organize school? What are the ways that we can create this atmosphere and environment so that we can really stoke curiosity and we can really cultivate kids who ask questions and wonder and are curious and not just completing tasks?
2: So I I think, um, you know, one of of the ways that I found that that works is – I always began our entire um, semester with kind of a, a genius hour type project. Um, we call them geek out projects, and it was like whatever topic you geek out about, that's what it's going to be about. And then you, um, and then you just follow your curiosity, whatever you want to know about that topic that you're really into. And um, the lesson I learned that I didn't even learn until I taught this way was that there is no such thing as a shallow topic or a shallow subject. So in my mind, I was like, well, fashion's kind of shallow. No, it's not. It's deep. It's how people express themselves on a profound level. Like, oh, sports is a fun escape. Sports has led to massive social change. Um, Movies are not escape. They are uh, things that are crafted and the amount of time and attention and intentionality that goes into any topic around the communities of participation that exist in those are, are far deeper than people think when they're not in those communities. So I think, like, letting them be what they're into and then chase their curiosity in that is a, is a piece of it. And I think, like, the, the thing I always hear when I say, why are kids less curious when they end school than when they begin is i hear people say well they've learned a lot since then so that's why they're less curious but the truth is anybody who learns anything becomes more curious an astrophysicist is really curious about the universe they're not like i'm done i'm fin- i'm finished being curious no more the cosmos are done we're finished like they never get to that point so i think that's one of the pieces um and then the the, the, the complementary side of that is to remember that um, in language arts and in math in particular, those two subjects, where I see the least amount of inquiry, to be honest, are the subjects that are the most content neutral, where you could, you could have any topic and mm-hmm. ask any question you want and still master those subjects.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, my daughter, kind of your point, Katie, she's in second grade, Shari knows how the game of school works. She's in second grade, Shari knows the game of school. Game of school is really simple. If you as a student make the adult in front of you at school happy, the adults at home are going to be happy. And that's it. There's really simple, simple rules for students in the game of school. You choose to play or not, right? If you make those those adults happy, then the people at home are happy. A lot of kids rebel against that or they don't want to play that game, but a lot of kids understand. My daughter's seven. She understands the game of school. And so if if you want schools that are not gonna have that game, you know, if, if you're a teacher watching this right now or you're a school administrator watching this right now, you kind of have to do a self-audit. Um, because that, the whole kind of first phase is that look, listen, and learn, and a lot is almost about yourself, right? So the, the four questions I'd, I'd ask you to kind of ask yourself is, what do I allow for in my classroom? What do I make time for in my classroom? What do I support in my classroom? And what do I praise, assess, and look for in my classroom? And the same goes for school leaders. It would just be allow, support, make time, and praise in your school, um, depending on kind of what level you are. You have to be real, you have to be real about, about those answers if you want a different experience than the ones most of our kids have in school.
0: And, and AJ, I don't know if this is a pushback to what you just said, or just maybe a redirect, but why use the term classroom? Cause really it's yeah. like, do you know what I mean? The, it doesn't,
3: yeah. It doesn't have to be classroom. I agree. It, it could right? be. Cause,
0: I, cause yeah. I know, I know the work, uh, I know the work both of you and John and um, what you guys do in, in your roles and uh, there is no way that you're stoking kids. And the only time they're using is their classroom time that they're in that physical building. It's going to after. And I think that's a real, um, like when you get to a point where a kid walks out of school at the end of the day and they can't stop thinking about it. I I actually wrote like a really weird post about the movie La La Land and how I could not get it out of my head.
3: I saw that. yeah, I
0: couldn't get out of my head. Yeah. And I think that if you actually have a point where, some type of learning is, you know, a kid leaves and it's stuck in their head that they can't stop thinking about it, that there's a real, you know, powerful thing. And I think that maybe the classroom is where some of that is inspired, but I know that from your work, that that would be very limiting to actually what you guys do. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's based on kind of
3: what your role, but the same thing I think about it as a parent, right? Like what do I allow my kids to do? What do I support my kids to do? What do I praise them to do? Because we all are human and, it's not just what we're praised for, but like Albert Bandura's social learning theory is what others around us are praised for, we are more likely to do. And so that, that positive reinforcement and praise of others, all the research says that that is one of the best ways to get people to be doing that work. And, and I think oftentimes we always want to say, oh, the state's doing this, 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 this. But like what what can we change? What can we influence? What can we control with whatever role we have in a child's life?
2: And I I just want to say something as well connected to the curiosity side is so if if a student is curious and they have questions and they can generate their own questions, they also on some level have to have the freedom to own their own process. Um, And one of the stories that I mentioned in the book was I had students, I had created what I thought was helpful for every student, the scaffolding for research. And um, the first thing I noticed about research that blew me away Uh, at our school was that research was something that was done in the fourth quarter as a specific unit. They did a, they did a research paper that went nowhere. Every, every kid did, every kid did. And then in the meantime, it struck me that um, kindergartners on the playground were engaged in research and they didn't know how to read yet. So like how, how is it that we made research so complicated and so difficult that It became a reading skill rather than something that is natural to the human experience. Kindergartners on the playground research, two-year-olds research. It is a natural piece of what we do as, as humans. And despite that, I still provided all the scaffolding, thought I was helping out. I had a moment where a student came in and he was like, how come the computers are so cold and the desks aren't or the tables aren't? And I said, I don't really know. I, like, I can't, how am I going to explain thermodynamics when I don't even understand it? And so I looked at him, and I was like, well, you know what? You should probably just research that. Go look it up online. I'm sure you can find some videos and stuff. And he looked at me, and he said, I can't because I have to finish the research for this class. And it struck me that I was providing all of this scaffolding that was required of him, and he knew how to research. And so that was the moment for me when I said, like, I can provide the scaffolding and allow kids to access it if they want to, but the reality is they need to be able to not just be curious, but take that curiosity off-road and chase it and, ha- and own the process of what they do with it.
1: I think, John, that's a huge point. The scaffolds, so often we over-scaffold learning for kids and we put all these things in place because we feel like that's our job as educators, to help them understand and take them through the process. And so often we take that cognitive load on ourselves and we take that learning, those learning opportunities away from students. So I think that's super powerful to be reflective. And I think back to AJ's point, what's in your sphere of influence? What can we do from where we are to think differently about that experience? And sometimes it's just asking the right questions and then scaffolding as necessary rather than over structuring the process.
0: So that actually leads, and we're going to ask one more question and then we're going to take some uh, participant questions. So I'm watching the iMOOC hashtag. Uh, If you have some questions, uh, tweet them out there. We got a a couple, uh, we're running a little bit long, but I think the conversation's so good. I don't want to stop it. So, uh, I'm going to actually ask each one of you, and I'll start with Katie. Um, basically, give me an answer in about 15 seconds. Um, so, the, one of the key quotes in the book is change is an opportunity to do something amazing. How do you get people to embrace meaningful change in the work that you're doing? So, one strategy, um, and you can go, fi- if you go over 15 seconds, I don't really care, but not too long. Um, what's one thing you've done in your roles to help? your peers uh, embrace meaningful change? And we'll start with you, Katie.
1: Great, Um, so the first thing that comes to mind, especially since we're talking about design thinking, is really empathizing with the end user. So having teachers interview their students, having principals go in and interview their teachers and ask questions is such a critical place to start to find out um, what opportunities exist and really connect people with um, what's possible. Was that 15 seconds?
0: That's great. That's great. <laughs> like that was 17 and a half. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, cut it, I'll cut it out of the podcast that extra two seconds. <laughs> All
1: right.
3: I, I would just say, um, you have to make time for it as a leader. I, I, I too often, uh, teachers and, and everybody in education gets stuck in kind of that rat race and we don't, we don't have those, uh, those half times. And I think halftime is awesome. Uh, As a coach, I loved halftime because it was a way for me to gauge where my players were at, but also where I was at, where my staff was at and giving people a break where they can think and decompress and not have to accomplish something else is a huge way uh, to kind of change that. John, what do you
2: got, man? Um, So right now I'm working with uh, pre-service teachers, and I think that there's this mistaken belief that they come into, that they have to, like, master the basics of traditional teaching, and then a few years down the line when they have the classroom management under control, then they can do innovative stuff. And so what I've asked them to do is, you know, I've I've asked two questions. Uh, The first one is, um, what cool thing would you be doing right now if you were five years into teaching? And then what would happen if you did that now? Um, And then the second question I like to ask is, um, if the rules were completely gone and all you had was the standards that you had to teach, what would you teach in the most interesting way possible? Uh, and then from there they develop a unit plan and, and they really are different. Some of them are PBL, some of them are design thinking. Um, some of them incorporate things like genius hour and stuff, but, um, the biggest thing I see is, like I said, the, the, it's it's the fear. It's the risk aversion. So That was that more also, than 15 seconds.
0: That, that was awesome. I, I love that. John, those questions you asked are awesome, and They're it great. actually ties in perfectly uh, to what I would actually say is one of my answers, but um, to this week's uh, blog post, one of the prompts that we have, uh, one of the things that I think is really crucial is actually embedding time for reflection. That if you have a staff day... Why not give people an hour like to just go away and not talk to anybody and write and reflect in a way that's meaningful to them? Like we're so inundated with collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. And I think we don't give people time just to process. And I think if you embed that reflection time into your day, it actually helps us you know move forward. Looking back helps you look move forward. And um, the 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 blog prompt from this week, uh, one of them anyway, is, um, if you were to start a school from scratch, uh, what would you make sure was there and what would you take out right now? And I think the question is when you actually look at that blog that you write, and I think, I can't remember. We talked about like the sphere of influence is probably Katie talking about what you can control. I think you can get a lot closer to that ideal school than we give ourselves credits for. And, and I think that's a, a really good way to kind of end this part. So really appreciate your answers. Um, I have a few questions here, Uh, the first one is from Joe Robinson and Joe is from actually Alaska I just met him last week awesome guy his Twitter handle is at Joe Robinson R O B I S -S O N 907 and he says uh, he asked the question what type of balance, should there be between like the maker movement. And other innovative ideas to maybe like you know some of the things that you know with curriculum and things like that. And I, I'm paraphrasing for Joe, so I don't know if I asked that correctly, but um, like where do you find the time for like things like Genius Hour, design thinking, um, and and then make them actually happen? I know you kind of answered this in the in the in the podcast so far, uh, so far, but would love to just maybe give a more concrete answer.
1: I'm gonna jump in real quick on that, just because I think. Um, a- a lot of times we talk about project-based learning, design thinking, and we think we have to fit it into a box and do something a certain way, um, but I find the most innovative teachers, the best teachers are really working with what who they have in front of them, who the kids are in their classroom, and designing those experiences. They're pulling design thinking, project-based learning, and they're designing all of that together rather than just making it like, here's my, here's my one project that's project-based learning, or here's my... Um, like you said, the end of the unit. So really taking what works best for the environment and for what the kids need can be a way to balance that and to way to fit it in. So it's not something extra.
3: Yeah. I say, I think balance is overrated. Do do what works and keep doing it. That's, that's the, that's the way to win and that's the way to have success as a learner. Um, Obviously you're going to have to have multiple experiences, but you know, find what's going to work for those kids and, and have the kids find that themselves and, and, and get after it. I I wouldn't spend too much time thinking about balance and spend a lot more time just thinking about what's, what's working.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't think too many people were like, when the printing press was invented, we're like, well, well let's make sure we're balancing this with plenty of scroll time. You know Um, like if something is good, then, then, then do it. Um, If the question is, is integration, then, then that's a valid one. And it comes down to, make sure that what you're doing fits what you're required to do. Um, But if I, yeah, but I guess if I went with balance, I would have done like, I'm just going to do one design thinking (laughs) project a year, and then I'll go back to I do, you do, we do, uh, or I do, we do, you do. And the truth is that that didn't work for me and that didn't work for my students. Um, So, yeah, I guess... I guess I'm kind of in agreement with AJ. Like I think balance is a little bit
0: overrated. Let me just just add something here. Knowing the three of you personally, I would actually say you are three of the most unbalanced people that I know. (laughs) And that is totally true. And, but I actually know that each one of you has this really deep uh, pursuit of meaning and doing something really powerful. And I think that, and I would all say from my knowing you personally, I would say that you're happy people as well, that it's not, well, balance is how we find happiness, The I've written about this previously as well. The notion of like finding meaning and sometimes uh, knowing the three of you, um, I know you're very frustrated with some things that you're doing. um, But because in that pursuit of meaning, that's actually not the worst thing, right? Like that's, you won't ever go through that. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting that you guys brought the balance part because I always talk about this and how, like, it's not something I'm striving for, but I'm glad someone else said it so I don't feel horrible. <laughs> well, I also think, so I also want to say something about balance, which is that, like,
2: the, the assumption is that balance is moderation or, or that you have to be in this middle zone. But the reality is that, like, most of what you strive to do isn't a middle place. It's, it's holding on to two different things at the same time. And so like, uh, if it's, if it's creativity and consuming, for example, those aren't, those are both really necessary. So teach kids how to consume critically and really think about what they're consuming and also be creative, but it's not a middle zone and it's not a moderation. It's hold on to both of those things at the same time.
1: And I would just add on to that, depending on the learner, there's not one balance that's gonna work for one learner. So you have to you have to be flexible depending on who's in the classroom and sometimes a little bit more direct instruction versus a little bit more openness will work for a variety of kids.
0: So I got one more question. I just I cannot wait to hear how you guys answer this to be honest with you. Uh, I kind of have a feeling how you're gonna answer it, but I- I'm just really interested. And then we're gonna uh, summarize the the day. Um, it's from AJ Bianco at AJ. Oh, I B- saw this one. C- a great,
3: great name.
0: Great as, name as, is a teacher, as a teacher, how do I show innovation in my classroom without trying to brag or show off? I don't want colleagues to be angry. I would love your thoughts. Um, I, I would say, <laughs> um, first of all,
3: just document, right? So, so document what you're doing and be completely transparent about what your students are doing. Uh, and document the journey instead of trying to show the polished finished product of, of what your class is doing or what you're doing. Uh, when you think about what we like to watch on TV, what we're interested in, it is people documenting their lives and their journey. You're not showing off if you're just showing what's happening. I think the the show off part comes in when all of a sudden out of nowhere, someone shares uh, what what their students have done at the end of something and is trying to one up. There's kind of like a uh, a one upsmanship. And um, to be quite honest, I don't I don't know you, but if if you're um, feeling self confident, uh, self I guess aware about about showing off or something like that, just check your motives, right? If it's if it's for uh, the best experience for the kids, then I don't think you should you should feel like that. Um, But if but if you're feeling that there's some other reason of why you're doing the projects, there's other motives. Then then I would say kind of just check that if if you're having that question, you know, in the first place.
2: And and I, 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 you
1: go ahead. I I was just gonna say that when we think about it, sometimes this pushback against innovation is because it's the flashy technology and it's tools, and some people don't see the connection to really. to deeper learning outcomes for kids and to getting to that that place we want to see where students are really producing great work and learning in powerful ways. So I think the innovation has to be tied to what why is it better for kids and what are the outcomes that we're getting to and how what you're learning in the process. I always find it really powerful one to show what kids are learning and have their voices be amplified but also as a teacher and a learner what are you learning and how is it changing your thinking versus just showing how this one thing is better than everybody else?
2: And I think at a site-based level, um, you know, some of the best change that happens at schools is, is grassroots. And it happens from teachers getting other people on board. And it doesn't look like bragging if you're being vulnerable. And if you're being honest, and if you're sharing mistakes, I've never met a teacher who doesn't want to give advice. So, it, like my whole thing was, there's always people in in the grade level who are experts in areas that can connect to design thinking or PBL or whatever I was attempting. So I would I would go to them and I would say, hey, I'm doing this this project. Tell me what you think of it or tell me what needs to be changed or give me some critical feedback or um, you're an expert on blank. Can you tell me something about that? Cause I want to integrate it into the topic. And um, a lot of times that's where it became kind of contagious because they knew I was genuinely curious about what they had to say. And just because someone, someone's approach may be more traditional or maybe more whatever doesn't mean that they don't have amazing things to offer into my classroom.
0: So I'm going to, I'm just going to give a final point on this. And then I'm going to just thank you guys for being here. When we look at this, first of all, if, if someone feels uncomfortable because you're doing good work, you're not the problem. I want that to be very clear, is that when we talk about things like equity, that what we do sometimes, I've seen this in schools where teachers don't want to do good stuff because they're worried other teachers might be offended they're doing good stuff. So you're creating an equitable opportunity for your students at the extreme lowest level. Right. And what you need to do is make sure that you're, you're doing, you're always focusing on doing really great stuff. But as, as the panelists kind of talked about, sharing your learning is different than just bragging. Um, and I think that's a really crucial aspect is being able to take feedback, being open to this, because the more open we are, the better it is for kids. If you're doing something in your classroom and, and it helps me spark an idea or do something really powerful, that's better for kids. But if I give you feedback... To help you think about something that you're doing, it also helps to be better for kids. And I think that we have to kind of get over this notion that we're bragging. There's a difference between sharing your learning or begging for someone to retweet your stuff. There's a a big difference there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big shift. And and I think uh, that really ties into this week. Um, This is the first week, and people are really excited about iMOOC when it starts off. And, and then they have to share their own learning, and they're nervous about it. So I want you to be comfortable sharing that blogging that we all started someplace. Uh, there's some prompts on the blog, and I think that I, I really believe this. You can have a million followers or a zero, zero followers on Twitter. Nobody can read your blog, but one person sees it. It can make a huge impact on the lives of 20 kids, 50 kids, 1,000 kids. And I think that we need to be able to share and I think that's what's really powerful about iMOOC um, is that you actually have have the opportunity to learn from this great group. So I'm going to ask, first of all, I want to thank you guys, but I'm going to ask you for one thing people should do uh, moving forward. Just one thing and Katie, uh, I'd like you to share one too, even though AJ and uh, John are guests, but I'll start with you AJ, one thing people can do moving forward right after today try stuff i mean i i just try some
3: different things with your students with your own personal reflection uh your own professional blogging getting connected on twitter there's just just try things you know don't get stuck in the rut of doing the same thing over and over again and just try to find one thing for you to try don't try a million things just try one thing and love
0: see it. what happens. love it
2: john i would say this um I would be more specific and say try try design thinking, but try it for um, one specific day or one specific week at a moment when it's low risk. So if you're scared, if you're worried about how it'll turn out, do it on a testing day. Do it on a, the day before a break. Do it on a day when people are just checking out and choose that to be the day that you zone in and really treat it like an experiment. And
0: Katie?
1: So the, I'm going to comment on a Um, post I just saw on Twitter. And someone said that, can you give, um, ask principals to give us permission to innovate? And so my one thing would be, don't wait for someone to give you permission. If you have a good idea and you have something that you want to try that's better for kids, do it. Try it in your classroom, share what you're learning. If you want to ask, open up the conversation with your principal, open up the conversation with your teammates. Don't assume that you can't do it. Assume if it's better for kids, you could and you absolutely should do it.
0: And uh, I'll just iterate what all of the all of the panel members said: just go do something. Don't sit and let the ideas percolate in your head and not put them, you know, into action. I think that's kind of one of the big things with innovation. Uh, so. I want to thank you guys. Uh, we were talking before we even started. We were hoping that we get 50 people. We got up to 300 people tonight. I cannot believe how many people are tweeting, sharing their ideas. Uh, this has a real power to to become an amazing community. And I really want to thank uh, John and AJ for help kicking it off. I would really strongly suggest their book. Katie Martin, uh, thank you so much because she has helped me so much with all this stuff. And she is one of the most brilliant people I know. Um, and what's awesome is that you actually will have an opportunity to connect with uh, um, AJ and Katie for sure on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Uh, we're doing a t- Twitter chat, um, 9 p.m. Eastern. And uh, Tara Martin is actually uh, connected, not related to Katie, but both are awesome. And uh, thank you for joining in tonight. Uh, I think we'll be looking at the Twitter, the hashtag after. So maybe we'll pop in and answer some questions. But really thank you for an amazing start to uh, season two of iMOOC. I look forward to reading your blog posts. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Go do something amazing. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you. Good night.
0: Mirror, mirror
3: on the wall. Tell me, mirror, what is wrong? Can it be my daylight clothes or is it just my daylight song?